Well, it's already been a wonderful day to uh, worship the Lord together. If you, do, if you go home today unblessed, it's your own fault. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again once to uh, Hebrews chapter 3. As we finish up chapter 3 today, I think you probably noticed as uh, Harold was reading this text to us, the word today and day after day that was repeated several times in this text. Let me read the po- uh, you a poem that someone has written. It says, It was spring... But it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was autumn I wanted, the colorful leaves, the cool, dry air. It was autumn, but it was winter that I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. In the book, uh, the great classic novel, The Mutiny on the Bounty, the author early in the book says this, If it's true that a man's useful life is over on the day when his thoughts begin to dwell in the past, then I have served little purpose in living since my retirement 15 years ago. You know, uh, we don't live in the past. We're not to dwell in the past, nor do we just reminisce about the future as well, thinking about how wonderful that is going to be. Uh, We live today, and this passage of Scripture focuses on today and the choices that we make Today, That doesn't mean the past has no influence in our lives. doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. As a matter of fact, as we look at our text, he takes us back to the past, to the Old Testament, and the events that took place with the people that came out of, the, out of Egypt into the wilderness. And as he does so, show, so he shows that uh, the Lord himself was faithful over his house, and Moses was faithful over his house. In verse 6, for example, he, he's banking off that verse. It's got kind of a warning verse that Moses had been very faithful trying to lead Israel, although they rebelled on a regular basis. And even more so, the Lord is faithful over His house, which speaks of His people today, or or His church. And if you're in that house, you're part of of what the Lord is faithful over. But as He comes to this verse 6 and now on to the rest of the chapter, He wants to make sure these people are in the house the issue is, are they really in the house of God? Are they, really, are they really saved, if you want to say it more clearly? And as we say that, as we think about that together, he is concerned that some of these people in this church, not all of them, because we see most of them probably are saved, but there's some in this congregation that may not be saved at all. And he's de- definitely concerned about those people. And as he talks to them, he wants to know, why do they think they're in the house of God? What makes them think... They know Christ. To answer that, he takes us, first of all, back to the Old Testament example in verses 7 to 11. And he talks, first of all, about the conduct of Israel. And then he talks about God's response to that conduct. Look at verse, verse 7. He says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Very interesting, if you, if you could read the Greek here that the word for provoke is the word mas- masa, which is Hebrew. It's a word that, uh, found in the Hebrew. 
That means, um, uh, basically means to provoke. And then the word for the, the phrase trial in the wilderness is Meribah, which also speaks of a place in the Old Testament. Now, Masa and Meribah is found in Exodus chapter 17. They're geographical locations. It was at Masa and Meribah in which the people rebelled against God and provoked him to anger. This is the text that he's using to talk about this. This was not just a general grumbling of the people. This was a full-blown rebellion against God. In verse 9 it says, Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. So during this time they're testing God, they're trying God, even though they saw his works for 40 years. Think about it, 40 years of the miraculous working of God in the lives of these people, but they tried him and they tested him over and over and over again. Unbelief never has enough proof. Uh, People might say, prove God to me. And that was brought up a little bit in one of the testimonies. Prove God to me and I will believe. And then you might ask, what would prove God to you? Would God parting a sea and letting your millions of people walk over on dry land, would that prove God to you? Would, what about dropping food from heaven for you for 40 years? Would that prove that God existed? What about a cloud that, that led you day and night, uh, a fire by night, a cloud by day for, for four decades in the wilderness? Would that prove God to you? What if God brought water out of a rock? enough to to quench the thirst of a whole nation. Would that prove God to you? And the answer would be, probably not. Signs don't necessarily prove it. And that's what he's saying here. For 40 years I showed myself to you. For 40 years I demonstrated the greatness and the magnificence and the power and the existence of myself. And what did you do? You tested me and tried me over and over and over. And that didn't just the Old Testament. Remember when Jesus gave the great parable of Lazarus and the rich man? And the rich man is in hell. And he cries out to Abraham in this parable. It says, send Lazarus, who has already died and gone to paradise, send Lazarus to, to my brothers. My five brothers need to hear about Christ. They need to hear about the gospel. Send my five brothers. And Abraham says, no, I'm not going to do that. And what they wouldn't listen to him anyway. And, and Lazarus says, if someone would come from the dead, they would listen. And Abraham says, no, even if someone rose from the dead, they wouldn't listen. If they wouldn't listen to the witness of the scriptures. You see, the issue is that, the, is that these people be- did not believe because they chose not to believe. Not because they didn't have evidence. Not because there wasn't signs of of the existence of God. They purposely chose not to believe. Now what was God's reaction to all of that? We see that in verses 10 and 11. He reacts in two different ways. Verse 10, Therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. First of all, God is angry. And that might bother some of you that have camped out on the mercy of God and the compassion of God, and you think that is, identifies everything about Him. The fact of the matter is, God is angry not just at sin, which some of us could live with, but God is angry at sinners, those who purposely choose to reject Him and rebel against Him. God's anger is against them as well. And why is that so? Because He said they go astray in their heart. 
Hart in the primitive times, New Testament and Old Testament times, spoke of the whole essence of a person. Not just their emotions, but their intellect, their emotion and will. Everything is inside them. All their nature. And he said, you were constantly, he says here, us going astray in your heart, even though I had done all these things for you. Unbelief is, is always ultimately a rejection of truth. Now, now listen to this. Get this clearly. It is not that a person cannot believe. It is that they will not believe. It's a choice. The evidence is there. They will not believe if they choose not to believe. And then verse 11, they were rejected for this. He says in verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now we, we start with the word here, word rest, 11 times in the next, this chapter and the next, the word rest will show up. When you think about rest, what do you think about? You know, just kind of laying back and lounging and, and watching some TV or maybe taking a nap or maybe resting right now with your eyes shut, supposedly praying for me. Uh, that's, that's a physical form of rest. And there's a spiritual form where we, where the cessation of anxiety, trusting in the Lord, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That's the rest of God that, he, that would be there. But the rest he's talking about here, and next week we'll flesh out these, what he really means by all this rest. But right here in this chapter, he's talking about the rest and what that was promised to the people of Israel who were going into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he says they did not enter that land, that promised land, because of unbelief. They shall not enter my rest, he says, because of the choices that they were making. The whole generation that came out of Egypt, that whole Exodus generation, perished in the wilderness with few exceptions because of their unbelief. Now the next generation, what we call the conquest generation under Joshua, did go into that Canaanite rest, the land of Canaan. But not the, not the original Exodus generation who did not go in because of unbelief. Now he's going to use this literal story, this Old Testament story. That's why you need to know the Old Testament. Don't listen to anybody, preacher or otherwise, who tells you the Old Testament is not important. It's vital. It's foundational. And so we take this Old Testament story, and now he's going to bring application to us now. And he does it in three parts. First of all, he gives us a warning. Verse 12, he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Start analyzing this verse. Look at the word brethren. He could be talking about the Jewish ethnicity, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. But almost certainly he's not. Almost certainly he's talking about those in the church here who are believers. So he identifies most of these as Christians. These are believers. And he calls them brothers here. But he says, within your congregation, like we have here today, within your congregation, very well may be some who have an evil, unbelieving heart, and to such an extent as they fall away from the living God. That's his warning. Take heed that that not happen. The word for falling away is the word apostatize. To fully turn your back on Jesus Christ. To fall away from him. To do so would be one who has an evil, unbelieving heart. This term living God is very interesting. He, he mentions it tw- four times. In the epistle, I want, I want to show that to you very quickly because I think it's fascinating. In, in this verse, he says, it is possible, 
to fall away from the living God. Go over to chapter 10, verse 31. In 1031, he says, If you fall away from the living God, something very frightening is going to happen. In 1031, he says this, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You do not want to be there. You do not want to fall into the hands of the living God in your unbelieving state. But you don't have to. Chapter 9, verse 14, he uses the same term, living God, to talk about those who have been cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. Those who have been saved, those whose sins have been forgiven, who have been cleansed by the power of God and the blood of Christ, they can live a life serving the living God. And then one more verse, chapter 20, 12, verse 22, for those who have been cleansed and are serving the living God, there's something wonderful waiting up ahead for us. He says in this powerful passage, I can't wait to get to it in 2026. <laughs> but, you have, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, something wonderful is awaiting those who have been cleansed by the living God, and that is to live forever in the presence of the living God, in that which is prepared for us. And that is not frightening. That is marvelous. That is wonderful. And so the living God, what a, talk, what a conversation he's having about the living God. Go back now to chapter 3 with me. Some of his readers were not just uh, in danger of misunderstanding some difficult doctrinal issues. Some were not just struggling with certain life issues or life choices and making bad choices in some way. These are people in danger of falling away from, apostatizing from the living God. Serious situation. In the Old Testament, when the Jewish people, the Exodus people, fell away from the living God, they were not able to enter the land of Canaan. When you and I, if we fall away from the living God, we're not able to enter eternal life and the city of the living God. Eternal consequences for those that reject Him. The serious stuff. But that's a warning. But now He moves to the remedy. Verse 13. What a marvelous verse, verse 13. is a theme that He comes back to again and again in the book. He says in verse 13, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pick it apart a little bit. The word encourage comes from the root of uh, parakletos. The noun form of that is what the Holy Spirit is called in John chapter 14. It means to come alongside of someone to aid them, to help them. And he says, I want, to, I want you to encourage one another day after day. I want you to come alongside one another to encourage them. He's saying, look at this, and here's, what, here's our application today, and here's what I really want you to talk about today in your small groups. Look around you, not this very second necessarily, but look around the life, uh, the lives around you, the people in your sphere. Are there people in your sphere of influence who are wandering around in the, the wilderness of unbelief coming up short of knowing the living God. They think they're saved. And some may be, who are we to call? But they don't have the evidence of that. Their lives are not characterized by, 
by following Christ. Their lives are characterized by grumbling, by disbelief, by apathy toward God, by having no vital relationship with Him. What do we do with such people? He says, condemn them. Look down on them. Give up on them. You've got a different Bible than I do, if that's what it's found. Encourage them day by day. Come alongside them to help them, to encourage them, to strengthen them in, in their faith if they're saved. And if they are not saved, call them to the gospel. If they're not walking with the Lord, don't assume they're saved. Don't assume they're not. But you need to call them to the gospel, the truth of the Lord. If you're a baseball fan, you know Jackie Robinson. He was the first black individual to play in, in Major League Baseball. He broke the color barrier. <clears throat> He's a great baseball player. But when he became a baseball player in the Major Leagues, obviously in the 1940s, he was not well accepted by a lot of people. And even though he was a wonderful ball player, a great contribution to the team, he, everywhere he went, he was, he was hollered at by the fans. He was screamed at. He, racial slurs. They, they did everything they could to run him out of baseball. They hated it, some people. There was a special occasion, it's very well known in baseball, in which Jackie Robinson was being booed by his own fans because he had made an error. And there's different stories about exactly when this happened. But one, one is that he met, made an error and the fans, his own fans booed him and called him all sorts of, of awful names. And he was, he's a second baseman, and he was stimulated. And the shortstop, one of the most beloved players ever in baseball, by a guy named Pee Wee Reese, and they called him Pee Wee because he was tiny, made me look big. <laughs> Pee Wee Reese went over to him. He was beloved by everybody. He put his arm around Jackie Robinson and then turned to the crowd. And the crowd hushed, accepted this man. And they were too. He went on to become a great friend of Jackie Robinson. There is actually a statue somewhere of this very event where he had his arm wrapped around Jackie Robinson to encourage him. And Robinson said this. He said that that arm around him saved his career. That's baseball. Let's translate that over to the Christian life. How many people in your world right now could use an arm, could use a prayer, could use some encouragement, could use you to care enough to come alongside them and say, my friend, I'm concerned. I want to call you to walking with God, and I'll help you in any way I can. I'll find help for you in any way I can to walk with Christ and to know the blessedness of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you in the faith. Now, if you don't have anybody in your life like that, you need to find some because they're everywhere. Everywhere you turn, there are needs and concerns and hurts. And in every church like ours, with the numbers of people that we have, there's always somebody starting to drift. Breaks my heart over and over to find some people that drift away. Over and over. Don't wait for the pastor or the elder or someone else to step up and rescue those people. You do it. You go to them. You love them. You put your arm around them physically or, or symbolically and you tell them about the graciousness of Jesus Christ and His gospel. You tell them about how the Lord loves them and how He wants them to live for them. If we don't, if we don't, 
then they will be hardened, it says in verse 13, by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceitful. It is such a lie. It will consistently, constantly draw us into a web of deceit and lies and will tell you that life is wonderful over here. I don't want to follow Christ over here. It, and it, until the day comes, our hearts are hardened. Friends, go after those folks before they're hardened. As long as they're still coming to church, as long as they're in your sphere of influence, as long as there's opportunity, once they're hardened to, the, to sin, it is so much harder to draw them back. God can do anything. But if we wait too long, it's more difficult. Go after them. Encourage them. I want you to talk in your small groups today about how you can do that in a more wonderful way. But now we move on. He's given us a warning and he's talked about the remedy. Now he gives assurance in verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as, they, as when they provoke me. Now, it's hard for me to tell. I'm not sure right here if he's shifting back to us personally, the ones he's talking to, the brothers in Christ, or if he's talking to uh, about the people in the church we're concerned about. Probably both. And he's saying here in this verse, he says, now look, in, in verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ. But, but there's a condition. And this is where we need to see, how do we know that we are in Him? He says, we are partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end. Assurance, this might help you understand what he's saying. The word assurance was a word used in secular manuscripts of the time as a document of ownership. It proved that somebody owned a piece of property or whatever. Now, here's an illustration from our world. Uh, we all, if we have a car, we have a title for that car. Now, I know some of you are looking for deals on buying cars. And so you, you, you surf the web trying to find just that perfect car. And it could be in Missouri. It could be in Texas. It could be anywhere. And so you find the perfect car at the perfect price and you meet somebody at Walmart over here to just, at the middle of the night to uh, buy a car with cash. And uh, I know some of you have done that because you've told me. I don't know what is wrong with you, but you, you, you do that. And that person brings the car up to you and you give them a wad of money and they give you what? A title of that and keys, hopefully, right? <laughs> Now, how do you know that car belongs to them? How do you know they didn't steal it at, at Target down the road and brought it over to Walmart? How do you know that? Well, theoretically, they have the title that shows the authenticity that they own the, own the car, and now you own the car because you have the title. Got it? I don't recommend what I just said, but you, you understand. What is the title deed to our salvation? What is the assurance of our salvation? He says here in verse 14, If we hold fast the beginning of our, uh, of our assurance firm until the end. The authenticity, the title deed, is that we not only prayed some prayer somewhere and became partakers, but that it says here we have become partakers. Notice it's very, very clear here. It's very different. You might miss it in the English, but the word become is in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense, that means something happened in the past 
with present consequences. If you actually came to Christ, then you are in Christ. That hasn't changed. He's not talking about losing your salvation. He's not talking about being saved and somehow walking away from Christ and losing your salvation. He is saying that the believer is one who, in this strange, believes. The believer believes. The believer is not one who expressed faith in Christ on one occasion many years ago and then walked away and lost their faith. A believer does not apostatize to that degree. They do not lose their faith in Christ. They do not stop believing in Christ. They do not turn away from Him in that, to like that. So the believer continues. Now I'm not saying, obviously, as a Christian, you may have doubts at times. You may struggle with this, that, or the other in your life. Life's tough. Life is full of toughness, and you are going to have wobbling at times. You're going to struggle at times. But that doesn't mean what he's talking about here. He's talking about someone who has turned away from Jesus Christ, who has fallen away from the living God, and he's concerned about those in this congregation who are like that, who are in danger of leaving the faith. So he warns them. The evidence of being a partaker in Jesus Christ is that we continue in Jesus Christ. We continue to, ber- put, to believe. He, so, so very carefully here, he, he's not talking about somebody who just made a, a, just a cursory profession of Christ and made no difference in their life. Friends, that's why we're very careful here in, in things we say and even in the baptism today. It doesn't matter, friends, how many times you walk the aisle at a particular church. It doesn't matter how often you have prayed the sinner's prayer or something like it. It doesn't matter how many times you've been baptized. It doesn't matter what offices you've held in the church. If you don't truly continue to walk with the Lord, you don't know Him. And there's a great danger of so many Christians or so many people that think they're Christians today who are truly not saved because they're trusting in something they did years ago that makes absolutely no impact in their life today. Those are the people he's talking about in verse 13. Encourage them. Take them back to the gospel. Encourage them in their life. And he's doing this with urgency here. Urgency. He says three times in this chapter today, twice more in chapter 4, is today. Not tomorrow, not next week, today. In the, in the classic book by C.S. Lewis, I think his best book, uh, Screwtape Letters, he tells of a legend. And in that legend, there is a, conf- a conversation going on between Satan and his imps, he calls them. And he says, guys, what are we going to be able to do to confuse these people about, about the Lord and keep them from getting saved? One of the imps stood up and said, I've got an idea. We'll tell them there is no heaven. And Satan puts that down. He says, they won't believe that. The book of truth is just filled with teachings about heaven. And in their hearts, they know there is a heaven. Another imp stands up. Well, I'll tell them there's no hell. And Satan says, that won't do any good either because they know in their hearts that they deserve punishment for their sins. And, and Jesus spoke about hell more than he talked about heaven. And then one little imp in the back stood up and says, I've got an idea. I'll just tell them there is no hurry. And Satan said, bingo, you're right. No hurry. No hurry. 
And, and that's, that's the greatest deception of all. Yeah, I, I know about Jesus Christ. I know about the cross. I'm hearing it this morning. I've heard it before. I've been urged to come to Christ. But there's no hurry. Let, let me get some of my fun stuff out of the way first. Let me live my sinful life first. And then when I'm old, like 40 or something, I will turn to Christ because there's no much, not much life left anyway, right? And then I'll turn to the Lord and I'll pray the prayer and I'll walk with him then. No hurry. You know what happens to such people? He's already told us. The, the, the hardness because of the deceitfulness of sin. You will cont- continually and constantly becoming harder and harder to the things of God until the point comes. And if you're here today, listen to me for th- three seconds. And you come to the point when you don't care anymore. When that goofy preacher up there is preaching away and telling you these things, you simply don't care. You simply don't believe it. It's not true. At least it's not true for you. At least not now. Maybe later. That's one of the greatest deceptions Satan has ever fostered on the human race. What does the Lord say? Today. 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 Five times. And he tells us in verse 13 to encourage one another day after day. Well, there's our example and application. He ties it all together now by looking at the true cause of the failure of the Old Testament people and how it relates to us. Verse 16 through 19. He asks three questions and answers them himself. And and he's pointing back again to the Old Testament people. For who provoked him, verse 16, when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses, who provoked him to anger? The people that came out of Egypt. How did they come out of Egypt? Excited. They were being led out of bondage. They were walking through the Red Sea. They were, they were headed into the wilderness. They went to Mount Sinai and, and got the Ten Commandments. How much more exciting could it be than that? And yet those are the very ones that provoked him to anger soon thereafter. Verse 17, he has another question. For, and to whom did he swear? Um, verse 17, I'm sorry. And with, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Why did God's wrath pour out on those people? Or, or who was it? He says, was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? They had had an experience. What an experience, the Exodus. But most of them had not turned to the Lord with their hearts. They had not truly placed faith in him. And therefore, their ang- God's anger was on them. And in verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they will, would not enter his rest? Those but those who were disobedient. Those who lacked obedience. And that, the lack of obedience was revealed in their hearts. So I, I want to be careful here. I want to make sure you understand. He is not saying that anybody, Old Testament or New Testament, is saved on the basis of their obedience in the sense of, of obeying the law or doing the right things. Or, or all, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by the work of Jesus Christ when you place your faith in Him. But what He is saying over and over is that if you have saving faith, it results in obedience and works. It does not simply leave you as you were. 
If that happened, if you prayed some prayer or walked some aisle and it didn't change you at all, then my friend, I want to go back to verse 13. I want to put my arm around you and say, my friend, you do not know Christ. And I would be amiss to tell you you do because I would be lying to you. Hard words, right? Verse 19 sums it up. So you see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Notice here, he didn't say they didn't want to enter. He said they were not able to enter. There's a barrier here. There's something that stopped them from being able to enter this promised land. And what was it? Well, look at verse, into the verse. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. They didn't believe. But if you're, if you're cautious here, if you're thinking with me, you notice at the end of verse 18, they didn't enter because of disobedience. And now they do not enter because of unbelief. Well, which is it? Disobedience or unbelief? My answer is yes. You see, obedience and belief goes together. True obedience results, true, true belief results in obedience. And if we don't have obedience, we don't have true belief. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's author's famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said this, Faith is only real when there is obedience, with never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. You are not, you have no faith, no saving faith in the Lord Jesus if it does not result in the acts of obedience. Not perfection. Always be careful. No one here is there. We all fail. We all sin. But obedience should be increasingly a part of our Christian experience if we know Him. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. But it's a faith that works out in obedience in our life. How many today do you think that, uh, like the Jews wandered in the, who wandered in the wilderness of disobedience, cling to some experience? thinking they're saved because of that. They, they vaguely remember a prayer, a, a campfire at camp one year, a hyped-up moment of decision, but there's no follow-up in their life. There's no evidence of Jesus Christ reigning in their lives and calling the shots there. They don't, they don't experience His love and forgiveness. They express saving faith, but it means nothing basically to them. What does God say to do here? He calls us to genuine belief and he calls us to it today. Today, he says, if you hear his voice. Going back to C.S. Lewis for just a second, Satan says, no hurry. No hurry to repent. No hurry to believe. No hurry to get serious about God. No hurry to turn from that enslaving sin that you love so much but you just can't let go of. No hurry. You can do it later. God says, and he gets the final word, verse 15, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. Today is the day of salvation. Today, this moment, is the day of, of turning your full heart to Christ if you know him. Not tomorrow, not next week. Today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you today for your word and your truth. It's a, it's a, it's a really a, a sermon that goes in a text that really hits us straight in our hearts. There's no playing around here, Lord. And I just want to lay out before you the people in this room that have heard what I've said and the passages that we've read. 
that they do not know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they would turn their hearts to you. And for Christians here, Lord, who are just kind of hanging around on the margins, they, they are saved, but they just don't want to give their whole heart and life to you. May they be convicted of that sin. May they make today the day they turn from things that are hindering their walk with you and they turn to the living God to enjoy the great pleasures that are found in him forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.